You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Wonderful to see you. I'm starting to reach that point where I look out and I recognize so many of you, but I still think it's helpful that I tell you who I am, just in case you don't know. Um, I'm Jonathan Lineball, and I teach over at Beeson Divinity School. My family and I moved to Birmingham over the summer after about 10 years in England. Some of you I actually met in England when you came on an English Reformation tour. That was wonderful. Some of you I'll get to know better next January when we go to Israel together. And in the meantime, I'll just sometimes stand here when I get asked to. Um, And it's always really good to be with you. We are in part two of what's a four-week series, but it's a little confusing because the four weeks are spread over more than four weeks. I can't remember exactly how many, but we did part one two weeks ago, and then Simeon Zoll was here last week. Um, I could say a lot of things about Simeon Zoll. We were colleagues in Cambridge for many years, but I'll just say Simeon Zoll was here, and you can sort of you know color in the story however you want, but it was really great to see him. It made me a little sad and a little happy, but mostly sad. And now we're moving on, and this is part two of a series, which is called, I think very creatively, but redundantly, The Gospel, The Gospels, and The Gospel According to Matthew. And what we did in part one was we asked, what did the earliest Christians say the gospel was? I'll say a little review after that, after I pray. Today we're talking about what are the gospels, and how are they forms of the gospel, And then our last two weeks, we're going to look at the gospel according to Matthew to talk a little less generally and get more into a text and see how it actually proclaims good news. So we'll be doing that in our last two sessions. But before we jump in, let me say, one, there's not exactly a handout. There's Just think of it as a gift. Uh, It's a gift, something to read, a picture to look at, um, mainly for after, but, you know, sometimes you need something to read and look at when the person's talking. I get it. So you have that. I'll make reference to it, but it's not an outline or anything like that. It's, I'll tell you what it is when we're going. Um, Gil, I think generously sort of printed 700 of them thinking this is going to be the most well-attended dean's class in the history of the Advent. I felt sort of honored by that. But really, I'm just glad you're here. The actual people who showed up are the people I wanted here. And thank you. Um, You came. So this was hand-selected. You just didn't know it. And the other thing I want to say is we should pray. And then we'll start. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. Almighty and most merciful God, thank you for the gift of gathering and opening your word and for your promise that when we do so, in your name, you are with us. We're studying the gospel, which is the way through the story about Jesus. You give us Jesus. And thank you that as we do that, we can be confident that Jesus is with us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so brief recap of week one, which was two weeks ago. Right, the math is getting really exciting here. But what we basically asked was, what was the gospel that the earliest Christians proclaimed. And we looked at Paul's letters to do that because Paul is our earliest Christian writer. So Jesus dies somewhere around the year 30 and Paul's writing somewhere around the year 50. And he tells us some things that he was preaching before he started writing. So we looked at that. We went to 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and said, remember what I preached to you when I was with you. 
before I wrote this letter, I was with you in person proclaiming the gospel. It was the most important thing, he said. It was of first importance. And then he offered a summary of it. Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So there were sort of four principal components of the earliest Christian gospel. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Christ. He's the King. He's the Son of God. What did he do? He lived. He died. He rose. And that was according to the scriptures. But notice that story about Jesus, the King, the Christ, the Son of God, that fulfills the scriptures through his death and resurrection, isn't just a story from the past or a story without a purpose. It was for our sins. It was for us and for our salvation. And so the gospel is never just a story about Jesus. When the gospel is becoming the gospel, when it's being preached as the gospel, it's actually the promise that gives Jesus. This is why Paul will say, I'm an apostle set apart for the gospel of God's son, which is the power of God unto salvation. And we thought about that connection, that the gospel both answers the question, who, who's it about? It's about Jesus, but also for whom? And Paul will say, well, it's for us. It's for you. It's for me. And we saw that Paul can identify that pretty clearly. At the right time, while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrated his love in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the gospel is mercy, freedom, forgiveness, hope, and life for real people in their bondage, their fear, their despair, their sin, their suffering, their sadness, and their death. Jesus is actual hope for actual people. And the gospel tells that story about Jesus's past. And by saying it's for you, that past collides with a personal pronoun and suddenly his history and your history meet. And that's the good news, that he is for you. A question, though, and the question we're really trying to answer in our four weeks together is how the Gospels preach or proclaim or are that gospel. And I've done enough teaching of the New Testament, teaching of Christian theology, teaching of adult education classes in church to know that it's not always obvious in what sense the Gospels proclaim or are the gospel. You can read Paul and say, well, that sounds like it's about forgiveness. It's about life from the dead. It's about freedom from captivity. And then you go and read the life of Jesus and you think, what's the connection between those? How do I read Mark or John or Luke or Matthew? They seem like they should proclaim the gospel. I mean, we call them the gospels and that's no accident. People like Paul had been going around for 20 years saying, hear the gospel, the good news. And then Mark, probably the first person to write one of these gospels down, begins by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. He uses the same word. Mark chooses the word 
that the early Christians used to describe their preaching of the good news to describe his writing of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. To say, this story is good news. But how do we read it so it is the gospel that it claims to be, and not just that it claims to be, but that the gospels actually are? I want to talk a little bit about the ways we can get it wrong, just naturally, and also the ways that the Gospels present themselves. But the way I want to do that is, and here comes the gift, to say that we're not the first to do it. Something very similar to this exercise had to happen in the 16th century during the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation's about lots of things, but at its core, at its heart, it was a re-encounter with the good news about God's love for sinners and sufferers in Jesus as that was communicated, announced, and declared in Holy Scripture. And one of the things that happened as people like Martin Luther in Germany, as Thomas Cranmer in England encountered this good news again, they wanted to make sure that Scripture, the place where that good news was announced, was accessible to more people. So there was huge efforts to get the Bible translated into the languages that people actually spoke and were learning to read. Into German, Luther translates the whole New Testament. It works together to translate the Old Testament. In England, William Tyndale had been working on that for a while, and eventually they get the whole Bible translated into English. They want people to be able to encounter Scripture. But they recognize that as they do, they're going to need a little bit of help. They're going to need an on-ramp. What's in this book? And they had a few ways for doing that. One thing Martin Luther did was he wrote a preface to every book of the Bible, just as a little, as you read it, here's some things to be aware of. And he wrote those not in Latin, like he wrote his academic work, but in German, so people could read them. He also worked with a guy named Lucas Cranach, the elder. He was a mayor and a pharmacist and also an artist. Um, he achieved more than me, but probably about the same amount as you in his life in Wittenberg. And he did lots of portraits. He did altarpieces, all kinds of things. But one of the things he did was this series of images. This is one of the weird churches in the world where some of you will have seen this before, but most places this would be a surprise. He did these series that would depict um, the law of God on one side and the gospel of God on the other side, or the wrath and judgment of God on one side and redemption and mercy on the other side. They had different names and there's different versions of this. He's not the only artist that did this. Some of them were paintings and you can go and see them. But the ones that are really interesting are ones like this, which it's um, a little hard to make out the details, but don't worry about it because it's not what we're talking about today, except for you know right now as I'm talking about it. But this is actually a woodcut and the point of doing it as a woodcut is then it could basically work as a stamp. Take the woodcut, dip it in the ink. They're printing Bibles. They'd open to the front page that was blank, and they'd push that on there and make a nice little frontispiece. And it basically said, here's some of what you're going to encounter when you read the Bible. It had some of the content, but also it was sort of a warning label. My brother was very into hip-hop in the 1990s, and he was always trying to hide CDs that had sort of explicit lyrics, parental warning. And I think a little bit of this like that. I mean, if you see the human being, 
It's the same human being on both sides. It's a warning, right? The word of God is living and active. And when you open this book, I'm not just going to tell you how to read it. I'm going to warn you that the holy and gracious God is going to speak and act and do something to you. You're going to find out that you need Jesus, and that's not always a pleasant experience. But then, praise God, these words will give you Jesus. And you can see the activity of the word of God on the human being there. So that was another way. The prefaces, Thomas Cranmer did the same thing in English. He wrote a preface to the great Bible. And then, most relevant for what we're doing today, and the reason I've given you this to take home, because I'm not going to read it to you, is he said, well, one of the things you're going to be reading is the Gospels. You're going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read the Gospels, I want to make sure, the best I can, that what you encounter in the Gospels is the Gospel. That's what we've been fighting for. That's what we've been teaching, clarifying. That's why we've translated the Scriptures, so that you'll hear the good news about God's love for you in Jesus. So he wrote this little thing, and I've kind of, it's a little longer than this, not much, but I've made it a little bit shorter. But he wrote a brief instruction on what to look for in the Gospels, and that's what you have here. In some ways, it was his attempt to do what we're doing in this class. How do you read the Gospels so that you hear them as Gospel? And Luther starts where we started two weeks ago. Some of you will remember, I asked you an extremely difficult question, and somebody whispered the profound and correct answer. I said, how many Gospels are there? And I told you that there were two acceptable questions, but only one sort of deeply true answer. Right? The acceptable but not exciting answer is four. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the deeper, truer answer is that there is one gospel, which is proclaimed by more than one witness. There's the gospel as announced by Matthew. The gospel is announced by Mark. The gospel is announced by Peter. The gospel as announced by the prophet Isaiah. The gospel that we encounter from Genesis to Revelation. There's one gospel, and it's the story, Luther will say in here, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became a human being, who lived, died, and was raised for us. That's the definition of the gospel. And we talked about that last week. It's the story about Jesus that as a promise or a proclamation gives us Jesus. But we need to clarify a couple of things here. And this is kind of gets us into the meat of today. That was a little bit of summary dealing with the fact that the previous service went over a bit um, and I sort of had to work out my emotional relationship to that, you know, who, whose time is this, um, that kind of thing. And now I'm sort of ready. So what's going on here? We've heard what the gospel is, what the early Christians proclaimed it was, etc. But now we need to make a couple of distinctions that take seriously some of our own habits or tendencies as readers, as human beings, frankly. And one of them is we need to recognize that there's a distinction between describing or offering a definition of the gospel and actually declaring the gospel. This is especially important in a place like Beeson Divinity School where I work with students who are going to become preachers. And we have to remember it's not quite enough to say, can you give me a definition of the gospel that is true? 
that is faithful to Scripture that says something like, the gospel is good news about Jesus, who is God's Son and the Messiah of Israel, who lived, taught, healed, died, rose, ascended, and will return. I mean, that is a wonderful, powerful, beautiful, true statement. But it's not quite the same as standing in a pulpit or sitting with a person who's hurting and saying that Jesus who lived, died, healed, befriended, rose, is returning, came for you. And because of him, God right now is not relating to you on the basis of the mistakes you have made that have you in tears in my office and I understand are so hard. Because of Jesus, it's not your past that determines whether or not you are wanted and loved. It's God's love. It's Jesus's life. It's Jesus's death that answer the question, what does God see and say when he looks at you? And because of Jesus, what God sees and says, what he's saying right now is as far as the east is from the west, so far have he removed your sins from you. I know that you have some secrets and some sin and some shame that you cannot forget, but in Jesus' name, God cannot remember. To feel the difference between defining the gospel and declaring the gospel. So that's one distinction. But the one Luther really focuses on here is the distinction between how we understand, receive, and read Jesus in the Gospels. He's going to tell us, and you can take this home and read it, but it happens in the last full paragraph, um, or actually the fourth paragraph on the front page. He says that we need to grasp Jesus, his words, his works, and his suffering in a twofold manner. And he's going to take us down this road. And you might remember that in week one, we said that the gospel both answers the question, who? But when you read the letters of Paul, you get more of a focus on the for whom and the what. Christ died for sinners, for sufferers, for those in bondage, in fear. But one of the shifts from the gospels or from Paul's gospel to the gospels as gospel, one of the shifts in emphasis is that we get to hear more about the who of the gospel. We get to hear more about who Jesus is. And Luther recognizes that because the Gospels are about Jesus, we need to be sensitive to the ways in which we receive or understand Jesus. And he basically says there's two ways we should grasp and receive Jesus, but we need to make a distinction between them and get them in the right order. He says, on the one hand, you can receive understand, view, relate to Jesus as an example. That's not wrong, Luther insists. In fact, it makes a lot of sense. If Jesus lived a fully, perfectly human life in faithfulness to God, in self-giving love to others, then there's no better place to look than to the life and the love of Jesus, to know what it looks like to live a human life and to live in love and service for others. And Luther does nothing but celebrate the idea that Christ is an example. 
He also says, as clearly as he can, that's not what makes Jesus the gospel. It's good, it's a gift, it's wonderful, it's right, and it's real. But it's secondary, and it doesn't make Jesus the gospel. If all Jesus was was an example, then basically he would be the best version of, say, the law of Moses, or the best version of a description of what we should do. He, of course, is that, but that's not what makes it good news. He says if that's all Jesus was, Jesus wouldn't make us Christians. He would just make us hypocrites. But, and here's the line from Luther that I'll read to you. This is the beginning of the final full paragraph on the first page. The chief article, he says, and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift, a present that God has given to you and that is your own. This means that when you see or hear of Christ doing or suffering something, you do not doubt that Christ himself with his deeds and sufferings belong to you. Luther, in a couple sentences later, will refer to this as the great fire of the love of God for us, whereby the heart and conscience becomes happy and secure. And this is why Christian preaching, he says, is called joyful news, a comforting message. It's why it's called gospel. The gospel, he'll try to clarify, is not really or fundamentally a book of laws or commandments which requires deeds of us. By the way, our next session will be on the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus has a lot to say about these kinds of things. So we'll have to figure out what to do with that, if that's not fundamentally what the gospel is. It's not fundamentally a book of commandments, but of divine promises in which God offers promises and gives us all of his possessions and benefits of Christ. The gospel and therefore the Gospels are nothing other than Christ coming to you and through the word you being brought to Christ such that all he is and all he has is for you and given to you. Luther has this great line where he says, once you've received Christ as a gift, what happens is that Christ is an example will give your good works a good workout, right? He recognizes the place and the propriety of Christ as the one who lived and loved a human, lived and loved as a human and lived a human life. But that's not the good news. The good news is that for those of us who could not live a fully human life, who could not love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and all our strength, who were trapped in patterns of loving ourselves more than our neighbor and more than God, while we were still sinners, as Paul says, at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And when you read the Gospels, recognizing that Christ is first, fundamentally, and finally a gift, what you see is that pattern that Paul described, 
that Christ came for me, that Christ came for us, that Christ came for you, that he came for sufferers, for those who are experiencing sickness and sadness, for those who are in patterns of sin and secrets and shame. What you see is that this is actually the people and the places that Jesus keeps finding himself in. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He seems to associate with those that other people were thought outside the sphere of the acceptable. He's with those who have contagious diseases and are physically and apparently morally unclean. And he doesn't just go to them, he touches them. There's this complicated culture of purity and cleanliness in the ancient world. And it works not unlike our basic theory of disease transference, which is that whoever is unclean, whoever is sick, has the potential to be contagious. Right? I think we've been through enough in the world in the last couple of years to know something about trying to stay away from that which can be unclean. Jesus breaks all these rules. And he also seems to break the kind of natural law according to which contagion works. He goes to people who are unclean, someone with leprosy, someone with a, a flow of blood that's been going on for over a decade, someone whose own moral behavior and situation in life puts them outside the bounds of being pure or clean or acceptable, prostitutes, people colluding with the Romans and collecting taxes, all of these different ways in which people were the wrong kind of people. And Jesus goes, he's in their presence, he often eats with them, these are already transgressing the things, and then, unthinkably, in several cases, he touches them. But what's supposed to happen, if there's someone unclean and then someone touches them, you're supposed to have two people who are unclean. That's the way the laws of impurity work. But that's not what happens in the Gospels. Jesus goes to someone who's unclean, impure, touches them, and instead of Jesus catching the impurity, somehow his holiness, love, and mercy is contagious and stronger than the impurity. And suddenly, Jesus doesn't have leprosy, but neither does the person who did. Suddenly, the sins and the past and the shame that defined a woman caught in adultery have given way to, neither do I condemn you, you are free. Go and live in a way that's not defined by your past. Go and sin no more. Our gospel reading this morning was from Jesus with a Samaritan woman at a well, and he comes to her, and in a way that she cannot understand, but she can testify to, he, to quote her, told me everything about me. He actually knew her. She wasn't parading her very checkered past, but Jesus saw her, understood her, genuinely knew her. And of course, like all of us, that's a scary thing. The thing that she was probably most clearly not going to share with this stranger at a well 
well, I've had five husbands and the person I'm currently with is not my husband. He knew. He saw. And yet he stayed and offers living water. And through her testimony, others, we find out, come and hear and believe. And when you take Christ as gift and not first and fundamentally as example, you read a story like that or stories like that, and you realize that the way the Gospels are proclaiming the Gospel is all of those incidents I've just been pointing to, which you know so well from just hearing over and over again in the Gospel. They're not first and fundamentally saying, hey, you, if, are you a follower of Jesus? Go find a well and talk to a person and find out what's really going on in their life. Go find a person who's suffering and kind of on the margins of society and associate with them. I want to be clear. I'm not saying not to do those things. I'm saying the gospel is not the command to go and be like Jesus. I'm saying that the gospel is the good news that while we were the Samaritan woman at the well, well, that we were the person with leprosy or a flow of blood that wouldn't stop or a secret that we couldn't share or a shame that we couldn't shake or a sin that we couldn't stop, Jesus came and saw and knew and stayed and loved and forgave. And he did it for the woman at the well, for the woman caught in adultery, for the woman with a flow of blood, for the leper who cried out, for blind Bartimaeus who couldn't see, and he did it for you. That is the good news. We're going to talk in our next time about how that good news, what Luther called here the great fire of the love of God, sort of fans into flame a love in us for God and for others. And that people whose lives were characterized by loving ourselves more than our neighbor and more than God, because of God's love for us, wind up doing surprising things, like going to wells and talking to people and finding out what's really going on, or being in places outside the expected realms of acceptability. We're going to get there, but I don't want you to mistake that good and wonderful thing that God creates in the life of Christians and in Christian communities for the gospel itself, which is the good news that when we were stuck in our patterns of secrecy, shame, sadness, sickness, and suffering, God and Jesus came not waiting for us to break out of them or to change them or to at least take the first step away from them. He comes all the way to the well, all the way to the place where people are holding stones to throw them at us in their accusation. And in those places, and in his name, the good news is announced. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is who this is. And if you want to know, I've just got one minute left that I'm going to say one more thing in that minute. If you want to know who this is, you can read all of those individual stories 
and watch Jesus interact with a person and know that because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and because in God there is no shadow of changing, that the way Jesus relates to the person in the gospel is the way Jesus relates to you because he doesn't change. But if you want just one place to look, follow the finger of John the Baptist as he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, the Gospel of Mark opens by saying the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark 1. You can read all the way through to Mark 14 and a half, and you'll see that there's not a single character in that story that really knows what that claim means. The people who come closest to it are not people. There are a couple demons that Jesus is casting out that say, you're the Holy One of Israel. They have some idea of what they're dealing with. But the disciples and the other people, they're confused. He helps, he heals, he says very surprising things. Nobody quite knows what's going on. Jesus tries to tell them three times in Mark 8, in Mark 9, in Mark 10. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Three times that explicitly, and all three times the disciples have no idea what's going on. The first time it says Peter rebuked him. Said, you can't say things like that. You're the Christ. One time... James and John say, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, can we sit on your right and one on your left? Because we know you're going to sit on the throne. And Jesus is like, well, I'm sort of going to sit on a throne, but you're not going to be on the right and left. It's not made of gold. It's made of wood and you don't sit, you hang. It's It's a different thing. And then one other time, the disciples are like, well, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus says, it's the person who's the least will be greatest. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He celebrates the last supper with them and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood. They don't get it. This is who he is. But then Mark describes Jesus dying, the sky going dark, the earth shaking, him giving up his breath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in the whole gospel, a character gets it. It's a Roman centurion, the one who was in charge of making sure that Jesus was crucified and died. And he, it says, saw how he died and then said, surely this man was the son of God. If you want to know the who of the gospel, you follow the whole story of Mark or you follow the finger of John the Baptist to that hill outside Jerusalem where the Lamb of God was slain. And you realize that that one who came, who healed, who taught, who befriended, who touched, who forgave, came for you to hang there. And because three days later, the tomb was empty, that same God who in Christ loves you and forgives you and died for you is alive and reigns forever. And therefore, I get to say to you in his name that you are God's beloved daughter and you are God's beloved son. And in you, God is well pleased. All right. Let me say a a very short prayer because I've gone over time. Father, thank you for the good news about Jesus. 
which doesn't just tell us about him, but in the power of your spirit and the proclamation of your word gives us the Jesus we need. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.